Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Gist is brought to you by Amazon. Detective Harry Bosch is back with the new season of Amazon's original series, Bosch, based on the best-selling novels by Michael Connelly. Stream the new season on March 11th on Amazon Prime Video. And by Goldman Sachs. Get information about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy on the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, March 11th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, an exhibit opens at the National Archives. It's called Amending America. So there are 27 amendments to the Constitution. Well, only because one of them had to repeal another one, right? Prohibition, 21st, repeal the 18th. How many amendments do you think were proposed? I'll give you a hint. It's over 11,000. It's not a hint, that's the answer. Over 11,000. And some of these just weren't the greatest ideas, I'm going to say. Well, then, neither was Prohibition. But after Prohibition came and went, there was an amendment in 1938, proposed constitutional amendment, to illegalize drunkenness. Yeah, so we couldn't actually illegalize the alcohol, but what about the pernicious or, to some, desired effects of alcohol? Someone, a copy in the archives, someone wrote in commentary in pencil, why not add the period of time commonly known as Saturday night is hereby stricken from the calendars of the United States and abolished? Other bad proposed amendments. In 1911, that Congress would have the power to protect migratory birds. All right, that's not such a bad amendment. It's just bad because it's an amendment. Right? Amendments should be bigger. Amendments should be more serious. There was the failed scheme in 1848 to elect the president via a lottery system where every state had a candidate, and then they filled out a ball for every congressman. And then there was, I guess, the 1948 version of the lotto. One ball comes to the top. That guy's the president. In 1893, there was an amendment to the Constitution saying the United States should be renamed the United States of the world which I guess nicely anticipated lyrics to Queens, We Are the Champion. Some amendments are proposed every year, year after year. If a thing is unconstitutional, a way to change that is to put it in the Constitution, then it becomes constitutional. So whatever the Supreme Court has ruled, like you can't ban abortion, like you have to legalize flag burning, like you can't just outright ban gun ownership, some senator or representative has introduced an amendment, no, we'll just change the Constitution. Luckily, I say these don't go anywhere. But all this talk and thinking about the Constitution reminded me of something. Wait a minute. When Hillary Clinton was my senator from New York, didn't she favor an anti-flag burning amendment? No, it wasn't an amendment. Here's a clip from local newscaster New York One from 2005. 
Senator Hillary Clinton supports a bill that would ban flag burning, but she's opposed to a constitutional ban on the act. Clinton is co-sponsoring a bill that would make it a crime to destroy a flag on federal property, intimidate anyone by burning a flag or burning someone else's flag. A Clinton spokesperson says the senator supports making flag burning a crime, but is hesitant to amend the Constitution. So Hillary Clinton wanted to introduce this bill. This should come up in the presidential debates, I say. Bernie Sanders would certainly have the other side of the issue. Introduce a bill to ban flag burning, but it wouldn't be a constitutional amendment. The reason she wanted to introduce the bill was specifically that it wasn't a constitutional amendment. But wait, you say... Wouldn't a bill just get overturned by the Supreme Court? Yes, but it would also have the effect of allowing Hillary Clinton to say, yeah, but I introduced a law protecting the flag. It's not my fault. So the New York Times quoted two people who were on the other side of the issue, and Barney Frank said, well, he kind of, he kind of appreciated how clever Hillary Clinton was being. He said, I disagree with it, the, the law to ban flag burning, but it's clearly a move away from the constitutional amendment rather than for it. So he gave her her props. Ariana Huffington did not. I'll give Ariana the last word. It seems in line with her stance on so many issues, trying to strike right in the middle and triangulate by not supporting the amendment because she would upset the base too much, and at the same time, supporting a legislative proposal that will appeal to the center. It's a truly tragic way of leading. On the show today, it is an Antan twig, but first, let's get into the spirit of 78, 1978, as we count down the number one songs of that year with Chris Malamphy. I want to take you back to 1978. Jimmy Carter was in the White House. The Christmas tree wasn't even lit because of the energy crisis. A malaise was settling over the country. And the only thing we had to gird ourselves against these uncertain times were songs by the Bee Gees, Donna Summer, and Chic. We're going through the hot hits of 1978, and I'm joined by Chris Malamphy. He is the man behind Why Is This Song Number One, the uh, Slate feature whose name I sometimes forget. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm good, Mike. How are you? <laughs> Great. You know why? Because I'm starting with the Bee Gees. Your favorite band, just about. You love the Bee Gees. Oh, man. I, I have such a reputation now for the Bee Gees. I want to talk a little less about the Bee Gees and a little more about Barry Gibb. All right. Because really the secret sauce of 1978 is Barry Gibb. Barry Gibb is behind more than half the weeks at number one in 1978. Wow. Um, in fact, uh, there's a stretch from the very beginning of the year to about uh, the summer, around July, where with the exception of just a couple of number one hits – Everything was written by Barry Gibb. Uh, we're talking not only about the three Bee Gees number ones from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Those would be How Deep Is Your Love, How Deep Is Your Love, Stayin' Alive, Stayin Alive, and Night Fever. All of them uh, jammed to by uh, Tony Manero, a.k.a. John Travolta in the movie. We're also talking about a couple of number one hits by Barry's brother, Andy Gibb, a solo act, all of whose songs were written or co-written by Barry and often Robin Gibb, including Love is Thicker Than Water and uh, the number one song of 1978, Shadow Dancing, which was a summer 1978 hit. Barry even wrote the number one hit Grease from the movie Grease. Yes, oh by God. Frankie Valli, late of the four seasons. So if you've ever watched 
Greece and thought to yourself, why does this movie that's supposed to be commemorating the 50s look so much and sound so much like a 70s movie? It's because the theme song was written by Barry Gibb. It's got groove. It's got rhythm. That's yes. not a 1958 song. It's got song, groove. Man. It's got meaning. Meaning? Oh yes. Oh, my gosh. Groove and meaning. Grease is the word, after all. Yeah, it is the word. I mean, 78 was the year of Travolta, let's be honest, right? I mean, it's the year where Saturday Night Fever actually came out at the end of 1977. It came out uh, just before Christmas 1977, but it was a phenomenon. The Saturday Night Fever soundtrack dominated the year 1978. Saturday Night Fever, the movie, was so popular that it was actually uh, re-released uh, the following summer in a PG-rated version. They actually yeah. released a, an edited version with softer curse language and you know fewer new scenes. Less, less reference to abortion. Indeed. And uh, I have a vivid memory in the summer of 78 of uh, going to see Grease and Saturday Night Fever in a Travolta double feature in my native Brooklyn. So uh, yeah, it was it was the year of Travolta. Uh, Welcome back. Cotter was still on the air. Wow. So, you know, and John Travolta for, you know, one week in the middle of 1978 actually also had the number one hit on the Hot 100 with You're the One That I Want, the duet with Olivia Newton-John. A few duets made number one on the charts that year. Johnny Mathis and Denise Williams. Is that Denise? Let's hear it for the boy, Williams. That is indeed, yes. Too Much, Too Little, Too Late. Oh, we remember all those songs. Too much, too little, too late. We knew it had to end. Oh, it's over. It's over. We have the superstar pairing of Barbara Streisand and Neil Diamond with You Don't Bring Me Flowers. You don't bring me flowers You don't sing me love songs You hardly talk to me anymore When I come through the door at the end of the day you Don't Bring Me Flowers is one of the most serendipitous number one hits of all time. Both Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand earlier in 78, maybe late 77, had each issued solo albums and each had a solo version of You Don't Bring Me Flowers on it. An enterprising DJ figured out that these two songs were not only the same song, but they were the same tempo and even in the same key. And he spliced together a hybrid version of You Don't Bring Me Flowers out of the two solo versions. Now, this is not the final version that we know. Uh, eventually, word got back to the the respective record labels and they got Barbara and Neil into the studio to record an actual version. Uh, but it was kind of an accident that it became a hit at all. The following year at the Grammys, Barbara and Neil actually made a surprise appearance to perform You Don't Bring Me Flowers, and nobody had ever actually seen them perform it together before. It was a very dramatic moment. They each walked in from either side of the stage, and Barbara herself had rarely appeared on television. She had a, a terrible uh, stage fright uh, appearing on TV. It was a big capital M moment. So you think I could learn how to tell? 
You don't say you need me. You don't sing me like someone. You don't bring me Unbelievable. You know, rock is barely represented. I mean, the groups, Wings and the Rolling Stones, Wings, of course, Paul McCartney, two super rock groups, but the songs themselves are made number one with a little luck. With a little luck, we can help it out. We can make this whole damn thing work out. That's a sweet ditty. I don't know if I'd call it rock and Miss You by the Rolling Stones. Well, yeah, and what's interesting about Miss You is Miss You is effectively a disco song. I, the thing about 1978 as well is that this is peak disco, right? We're, we're now talking about the moment when disco is infecting and fusing with everything. Everybody was, you know, moving to a disco beat in 1978. Right, and then there were a couple unapologetically unmistakable disco songs, A Taste of Honey with Boogie Oogie Oogie and Chic with La Freak. And what I love about those two records, Boogie Oogie Oogie and La Freak, is that both of them are, uh, let's call them disco records recorded by people ticked off about their acceptance into disco. Chic famously recorded Le Freak when they were barred from entering Studio 54. Uh, let's just say the original title of uh, Le Freak was not uh, Freak Out. It was something else. They recorded it after being really angry at not making it past the velvet rope at Studio 54. Boogie Oogie Oogie by uh, A Taste of Honey. A Taste of Honey were uh, a band playing at an Air Force club. Reportedly, uh, you know, they were uh, being taunted by the crowd and, uh, you know, being told, hey, play something we can dance to. And they basically said, oh, you want something we you can dance to? I'll give you something you can dance to. And out popped Boogie Oogie Oogie. What's interesting about 1978 is one year later, 79, you have the infamous uh, Comiskey Park uh, Disco Demolition Night, yes. uh, where angry rock fans, mostly white, mostly male, got together and burned disco records. In 78, you can sort of see the seeds of what was pissing them off. Uh, this is not me justifying their behavior by any means. In 78 and 79, disco felt like the Borg that ate all of rock culture. When you see a band like The Stones recording a song like Miss You, which, you know, with 2020 Hindsight is one of their very best singles. If you are a fan of Meat and Potatoes Rock, it must feel to you like uh, the center of culture is slipping away from you. Money. 
you know, I have tremendously fond memories of the late 70s. I think uh, with 2020 hindsight, a number of people do. But it's easy to look at this list of number one hits and say, wow, this was all about the beat, all about the producer, all about the funk and all about the club. In a way, it augurs what music became by the 2010s when, you know, we had a re return of what's now called EDM or electronic dance music, uh, where, you know, once again, beats are predominant and producers are stars. The seeds of that are being sown in the late 70s. All right, final question. Chris, how deep is your love? With my eyes on the morning sun, uh, I come and catch you in the pouring rain, Mike. Fair, fair enough. Chris Malanfi, he takes us through the number one songs of a year. This year was 1978. Thank you very much, Chris. You got it, Mike. Know your eyes in the morning sun. I feel you touch me in the pouring rain. And the moment that you wander far from me, I want to feel you in my arms again. And you come to me on a summer Well, you know about my love of Bosch, H. Bosch, the art, the whimsy, the detail. I'm here to talk about another H. Bosch, Detective Harry Bosch. He's back on the new season of Amazon's original series, Bosch. It's based on the best-selling novels by Michael Connolly. He's an LAPD homicide detective. He had an involuntary leave of absence. It's all explained. Plus, you could binge-watch the last season. So, Bosch's first case... They say it may prove his biggest challenge yet because he's following a dangerous trail of corruption and collusion, one that uncovers the dark side of the police department and threatens Bosch's relentless pursuit of truth. I like my detectives relentless. On the truth side, stream the new season of Bosch now on Amazon Prime Video and listen to the companion podcast, A Fine Mist of Blood, on SoundCloud or on Stitcher. And now, the spiel, it's an Antan twig, our name for the three-week, roughly, very roughly these days, three-week period where we go and we collect all your thoughts, all your feedback, and we even name a lobstar, the best listener or interactor or, or tweeter of this three-week period. By the way, this three-week period has been extended a little bit. It's our Antan twig. We could do what we want with it. So I try not to make the show too commercial, although it was a commercial, an ad, that inspired one of our letter writers. But you know, I also like to talk about my life I don't try to bore you with the details. Like the other day, I was behind a guy trying to get on a subway, very crowded subway. And instead of actually trying to get on the train, he just looked at his phone the whole time. But I won't bore you with that. I have several thoughts on that guy. One day, I was talking about how cold it was, and I was wearing a different kind of coat, and it was a very furry coat. Got to talking about that, the fur t tunnel that the hood represented. And I got an email, an email from a listener who represented a company who has an entirely different kind of coat. She said, we'll send you the coat. I'm like, all right, I can't promise anything, but I'll wear your coat. So this coat, the Oros coat has a proprietary solar core aerogel system. And you know, they're serious about this because 
A, it is proprietary, and B, solar core. There is no space between solar and core. The core is capitalized, but there is still no space. When companies get serious about how cutting edge they are, they don't put spaces in their words. Aerogel doesn't have a space. I wouldn't even think of giving Aerogel a space if solar core doesn't have a space. So I wore this coat. And you know what the coat was? It was warm. And you know what else it was? It was pretty lightweight. It was a lightweight, surprisingly warm coat. In fact, the days I wore it were almost a little too warm to wear the coat. Then a nice cold day hit, and I wore the coat, and my feeling was, wow, my body's warm. My face is really freezing. So what I did was I interviewed one of the founders of this company. Now look, so many interviews are a quid pro quo, right? Someone wrote a book. We interviewed someone about the book. He's trying to sell his book. So why not a coat? Just take out book and replace coat. We have a very edifying interview about a coat. Well, we thought it was a little transactional. We thought it was a little too commercial. But I wanted to say that the coat was warm. And I wanted to at least air one pressing question. Because, you know, this, this coat, after I wore it, it went up Everest. It was used, this aerogel technology was used in the Mars rover. It can keep you warm. I was wondering, here I asked Rithvik Vena, a creator of the Oros coat, what I was worried about. So, Rith, is there a danger that it's too warm? I mean, if you're insulating the Mars rover, maybe a person shouldn't be inside that degree of insulation. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. And that's actually been, it's been done before where they've coated an entire person, actually championed it, and they called it the champion supersuit, gave it to seven guys, had them climb Mount Everest. And they came back down, and they were complaining that it was too warm. Mm -hmm. And that was one of our biggest concerns. That coat, the one I was wearing, as far as I know, is now climbing Mount Everest. So I mentioned that I try not to be too commercial, but sometimes in commercials I mention things like I sometimes do commercials for a web company that helps you set up a website. And I mentioned that one website that I had always tried to get the domain name for was fmurrayabraham.com. It suggested myfmurrayabraham.com, which is a good suggestion if, in fact, I could lay claim to an F. Murray, if not the F. Murray Abraham. But Dave Bledsoe helpfully did a search for me, and he gave me some other names that I can buy, and they include F. Murray Peskaham dot design, F. Murray Peskaham dot space, dot news dot cloud dot ninja dot global dot expert f murray peskaham dot soy f murray peskaham dot lawyer now of all those i read to you what do you think is the most expensive and the least expensive and there was quite a spread are you ready now the results of that survey the most expensive domain name of the f murray peskaham space is f murray peskaham dot global that retails for 68.99 but for only 299 you could get fmurrayPeskaham.space. It doesn't make sense. Space is bigger than global. You'd think you'd have to pay more. For the record, fmurrayPeskaham.ninja is available for just $16.99. Now, Dave Bledsoe, I want to say that was an excellent contribution. Thanks so much. But you are not the lobstar of the Antan Twig. The lobstar of the Antan Twig goes to the listener who gave the most, who put it all out on the line, who interacted the best way. And the runner-up lobstar of the Antan Twig is a guy named Guy, Guy Petzl. Guy Petzl wrote to me and said, years ago, it really might have been years ago, I was talking to an expert uh, who branded the McDonaldland characters, and he invented Grimace. 
And Guy Petzl says, I have been on the Grimace tip for years and years. I have always wondered about Grimace, and in fact, I could prove it. And he forwarded me a letter that he wrote in 1992 to the McDonald's company. I will now read you some of Guy Petzl's letter from 1992. Dear Sir, There is one aspect of your widely distributed and apparently wildly successful advertising strategy which has continued to perplex me over the years. It involves your McDonald Land's characters. And here Guy Petzl acknowledges that, of course, Mayor McCheese is a cheeseburger and the hamburger is a hamburger and everyone seems to be everyone except that lovable, huggable, purple blob Grimace. What is Grimace? How did he get into McDonald Land? He recounts, Mr. Petzl does, his conversations with several McDonald's store managers. Oh, they're not going to know. He recounts that a lot of ex explanation is given that Grimace represents shakes, yet there is no purple shake, yet it doesn't seem that if you were a shake, there'd be a cup and straw. He doesn't understand any of it. Please respond because I won't be able to sleep well until you do. Thank you for all your time, Guy Petzl. He soon got a reply. Dear Mr. Petzl, thank you for writing to our senior chairman, Fred Turner. He asked me to respond to your letter. You asked some very good questions about Grimace, a big fuzzy purple fellow who lives in McDonald land. I'll try to clarify your conclusion with the following explanation. When Grimace first emerged from his cave and confronted the other citizens of McDonald land, he expected them to be frightened of him. The opposite turned out to be true. He was frightened of them. Wouldn't that be the opposite? No, he says no other character in McDonald land is more beloved, especially by the children who visit McDonald land from time to time. And this letter writer goes on to praise Grimace and say that he's not bright, but affectionate. He says that he does love shakes. He's one of Ronald's closest friends. He has a rolling gait. His voice resembles that of Charlie McCarthy's best friend from the country, Mortimer Snurd. He's harmless. It doesn't answer the question. It does not all get into the issues of kingdom, phylum, or species. Nancy J. Penny, senior representative of customer relations, totally dodges the question and then tries to buy off Guy Petzl with three $1 coupons, which in 1992, I suppose, went a far way. Guy Petzl, the man after my own heart, clearly sees the limitations of corresponding via written text. There was no way to give follow-up questions. You know, if we were Snapchatting with McDonald's today, we could nail them on what is Grimace, but we'll never know. We'll never know what Grimace is. Other excellent letter writers and contactors, I just want to thank Pete Thomas. Because as another just listener was wondering, hey, where do I find all those shows with Matthew Dix? Pete, I didn't even have to intercede. Andrea didn't have to intercede. Pete Thomas says, here, this looks like a list of them. And indeed they are. Anytime you could do that. Anytime listeners help other listeners, you get a special shout out from me. On another show, after I'd come back from seeing Bruce Springsteen sing the song Point Blank, I wondered aloud, what about Point Break? What if there were a song? In fact, what if there were a musical based on Point Break? I got a letter from a man who's written that musical. His name is Kyle Ewalt, and he wrote a musical called Bromance, which features a song called Point Break. He sent me a clip of a different song from that show. Let's hear a little of that. Wait, 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 wait. There's something that I need to tell you. Don't ruin the moment. No, serious, It's I've been waiting to say it for what seems like weeks, and it's not because I'm drunk. Shh. Don't speak. It's time that I tell you... Two bros talk to each other. Kyle Ewalt, I guess, was inspired to write a show about bros because his name is an anagram for Kale Wetley, maybe not the manliest of anagrams, so he went out there. He wrote a show about bros. It's called Bromance. This song is called You Get Me. 
This was good. This was an excellent contribution. I want to thank you. I do suspect you didn't write the show for us. You just wrote the show already and then you forwarded it to us. And that's cool. That's totally cool. But to have uh, such a musical talent listening to the gist and saying, hey, I've written a piece of musical theater about that, it inspires me in turn. And that's why Kale Wetley, a.k.a. Kyle Ewalt, you are the lobstar of this Antan Twig. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the GIST's producer. She has written to General Mills to ask for a full accounting of Captain Crunch's military service. She's questioning his seamanship. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is also involved in Crunch Boat Veterans for Truth. He has investigated Horatio Magellan Crunch's time as a midshipman and an ensign and found out that the once plebe Crunch expressed sympathies towards sogginess. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is thinking about giving the two crunch truthers their own podcast. But really, cereal? No one's going to listen to a podcast about cereal. The gist. We found out who Booberry was when Booberry was alive, and the answer is what we all feared. It was Mikey. He died after eating Pop Rocks and Coke in Vietnam, and now he's a ghost, a cereal ghost, who plays second fiddle at best to the fruit brute. Oom Peru, Peru, Du Peru, and thanks for listening.